Hello, it's David Shirley from Irish Funds. So this podcast is taken from a webinar we held on Friday 22nd of October entitled Effectual Innovation, Changing How We Innovate. So we have two presenters. We have Tony Moroni, who's founder and managing partner of Beta Digital. And we have Paddy O'Reilly, who's co-director of innovation through design thinking with University College Cork. Both will discuss how organizations can adopt the principles of effective innovation to reinvent their value positions, architectures and offerings. With introductions from Kieran Fennessy of City, I hope you enjoy this episode and check back soon for more great content. Hello and good morning to you all. You're very welcome to this morning's Technology Speakers Series on this Friday of a bank holiday weekend. Hope everyone is doing well. I'm delighted to have with us today uh, Paddy O'Reilly and Tony Moroni on uh, to discuss and have a chat about effectual innovation. So Paddy is a senior lecturer in the Business Information Systems at Cork University Business School. He is co-founder of the Innovation Through Design uh, Thinking, sorry, the Innovation Through Design Thinking postgraduate program, and that's delivered jointly between CUBS and the, and the School in Education. He's over 25 years of experience working on innovation and research projects in a wide range of industries. And in 2011, Paddy was awarded a PhD for his research into innovation strategies of organizations. Tony is the founder and managing partner of Beta Digital, a specialist strategy and digital transformation advisory firm. He's also co-founder of the Digital Transformation Lab in Cork University Business School, a think tank for digital transformation comprising of experts from industry, academia and consulting. He's also a program director for the Professional Diploma in Digital Leadership at the IMI. So Tony and Paddy, you're very welcome. And thank you for taking the time this morning um, for uh, this discussion and presentation on infectual innovation. So everybody is aware this will be recorded and will be available later on the uh, Irish Funds website. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to uh, Tony to get us started. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you, uh, Kieran. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, as Kieran said, I'm Tony Moroni. I'm delighted to be here with you today for our talk on effectual innovation. Lucky for me, um, Dr. Paddy O'Reilly is an expert on effectual innovation, so in reality, I don't need to talk about it at all. Instead, what I thought might be useful is if I set the scene by talking about innovation in the context of digital transformation, because both of these terms are, are used interchangeably, yet more often than not, you know, business leaders are at cross-purpose. In reality, unspoken differences hold back our ability to innovate, transform, and be competitive into the future. So let's firstly deal with innovation. And, and look, reality is much of what we call innovation is probably in the space of incremental improvements. Uh, and while incremental improvements are good, um, we now live in a world where leadership capability for innovation and transformation will determine who the winners and losers will be in the future. And if we think of the last year, if, if anything, this has brought this very much into focus. You know, our business models were tested. Uh, and in reality, you know, I would say COVID is just one factor because we have climate crisis, the push for a green recovery, a shift to working from home, changes in society, rapid advances in digital and ESG reporting, all of which are underpinning a need for innovation. And look, the funds industry is no different than any other industry in reality because you have access to the same talent pool, you have access to similar technologies, and you indeed you're governed by a common legal framework. So the question then becomes, you know, one of how to differentiate and in this context, how best to innovate? And to paraphrase Steve Jobs, innovation is the ability to see change as an opportunity, not as a threat. So key question for us is, you know, is innovation the same thing as digital transformation? Put it another way, you know, does innovation lead to transformation or does transformation lead to innovation? So think about that for a second. In some instances, transformation can lead to innovation. In other instances, innovation can lead to transformation. But the mutual causal relationship is often overlooked because we think about these things as the same things. And therefore, it's important that we distinguish between innovation and digital transformation, while at the same time exploring the interrelationship between both. So what is digital transformation then? And again, you know, terminology is important. 
How often have you heard digitization, digitalization, and digital transformation used in the same meeting? And, and in my experience, it happens all the time. We use these terms as if they are the same things. And in reality, they are not. For me, digitization is where the organization utilizes digital tools and technologies to do what it has always done. So in essence, you know, it's about moving from analog to digital. And if we think of the last year, it's a prime example of digitization. We use digital tools and technologies to allow our people to work from home and to keep you know, the business open so that we could engage with our customers. But we were still doing the same things. It's just that we use digital tools and technologies to let us do it. By comparison, digitalization is about where we're creating new propositions, new revenue streams, or new business models. So we're actually doing new things within the business today. Whereas digital transformation, that, that's about strategically reinventing the business for the future and enabling it to compete. And this is the whole organization we're talking about, not part of it, enabling the organization to compete and thrive in a digitalized world. So in essence, we're redefining the future of the business. And it's in this context that we need to explore the role of innovation and in particular, effectual innovation. And who better to explain this than Dr. Paddy O'Reilly. So Paddy, over to you. Uh, thanks a million, Tony. Um, and great to join you again today here uh, and maybe share hopefully some insights and maybe stretch the way we think about uh, innovation. Um, I'm always intrigued to know that there's maybe increasing focus on uh, transformation. Now, I, I'll even move it maybe one step beyond. I think there will be an increasing focus in time to come on transfiguration. Uh, which I believe is is, is a bit different. Or transformation generally focuses on maybe transforming what we already do. Transfiguration really is about taking new forms. Our organizations need to take new forms into the future in order to be able to thrive in the future. Um, I suppose I, I'm intrigued a lot by diagrams, and I think sometimes diagrams help us think differently. And particularly uh, this diagram really. Uh, which for me sums up the a paradox we have that really organizations ability to create technologies uh, outstrips our ability to really be able to work with those uh, technologies. Um, and I think that's captured well here in this diagram where we can see you know, the rate at which technology changes are, 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 are happening is far outstripping really our, the ability of our management teams and our organizations to take advantage of those changes. And that's captured in a thing called Martex law, which is essentially that technology is changing faster than organizations' ability to absorb the change. Now, I, I think that's a really interesting paradox and it's captured also by others. I know there's a, a guy I know, Jeff Jonas, was a, a scientist with IBM, now has created his own business. But Jeff often talks about that the amount of data that organizations have and have uh, access to is outstripping their ability to make sense of that same data. And the gap in between, the gap between the data we have and our ability to make sense is what he calls the space of organizational amnesia. Okay, he gives an example, I think it's Walmart in, in the States, where Walmart were hiring people that were fired from the very same um, uh, shop store that they were uh, prosecuted for shoplifting in. And yet Walmart had that data. So this is a big challenge really for us. And I think the issue is the ability of our organizations to adapt to, to uh, uh, change. And essentially when you go into organizations, um, I suppose there is this dominant logic. They have a way of working, they have a way of thinking, they have a way of being, which really, uh, I suppose, uh, in, makes sure that everything they do aligns with, with that default. And essentially it is, I suppose, um, uh, we use the term sleepwalking, our way towards a default fu uh, future. Um, if you look at uh, employees within those organizations, we have surveys that show something like is it 10% of employees feel and only 10% feel that their opinion are important to their organizations. Another survey, 5% of employees feel that they have a say in the most important decisions in their organizations. More surveys again, 70 to 80% of employees in large tech companies are engaged. 
So essentially what we have is large sets of employees that are essentially, uh, when it comes to change, innovation, are, are zombie employees. They play little role and are allowed to play little role, and that's maybe an important point. That you know, uh, we say talent is 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 sort of evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. So it's not that our organisations don't have the talent; it's probably that the opportunities aren't there for creating new f futures, redesigning our organisations. So for me, there's a big difference between uh, surviving and thriving. Um, I think. Uh, us as, uh, as humans uh, are really wired to survive. And we know from the, the work of the likes of Daniel Kahneman, you know, system one, system two thinking, that we are really wired to survive. We are wired to make those quick decisions at the watering hole, you know, uh, should I fight flight here? But there's very few of us allowed to maybe ask bigger questions, you know, in, in, Taking this metaphor forward, you know, uh, what do we need to do to make sure this watering hole is here in a year, five, ten years time? Um, and I think there's increasing, um, I suppose, awareness in organizations. Now, some of it goes back to what's called the triple bottom line, the work of John Elkton back in 1994. He coined the, 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 the idea of the triple bottom line, that organizations are very slow, but are starting to realize that their future is tied to a bigger future, the, the future of um, you know, people, the planet, uh, and these bigger purposes and not just uh, profit. And I suppose there's a, a saying that really, you know, uh, nature doesn't do straight lines. The world doesn't do straight lines. Yet we think in, in an incredibly um, linear way. And what we're trying to, I suppose, have to figure out is how can we really thrive in a world that isn't linear? And that really requires a certain group of us exploring, out exploring, looking for the future, um, bringing some of those ideas back into our own organizations. So best practice doesn't work in a complex world. It works quite well in a linear world. Uh, what does work in complex worlds is this exploring, this learning, this adaptability. Okay, so uh, who are these people? Who are the people really uh, that will go out and figure out, uh, the, I suppose, what is the future? Um, and, and they do exist. They exist in the general population. They exist within our organizations. There's work by Jeffrey Moore that says that maybe the lead innovators, the, the, those really innovative people are probably only about 2.5% of the overall population, but they do exist in our organizations, but we don't know in lots of cases who they are, and we definitely don't give them the space to go out and, and figure out those new things. And that's really, I suppose, what I'm talking about here and what Tony's talking about. Effectual innovation is really about trying to create the best possible futures with what we already have and without taking undue risks. Okay, so it's these people that aren't just looking at the now, but are trying to uh, figure out those uh, better futures using what we already have, these people, the resources we have, and doing it in a way where we're not betting everything on those futures. So we, we use the, the idea of maybe uh, taking lots of small bets. Okay, so it's about really finding space in our organizations. We, we call it wilding the organization. Space is an organization where people are allowed to do new things in new ways. And really, uh, it's based on the idea, a sort of an appreciative um, uh, approach that ordinary people can do quite extraordinary things when they're given the space to do new things in new ways. And we know that, we, we know that large scale change always happens locally first. It happens, uh, I suppose, with individual people that look like quite ordinary people starting to do new things. Um, so really, when these people then, I suppose, start to shine a light, and uh, and I suppose um, uh, it's only then we start to see new things in new ways that allow us really to see new things. Now that's a bit of a tongue twister, but very often it takes others to shine a light on things so that we then start to see things in new ways and essentially start to see new things. So look, we've over, and I'm keeping an eye on, on time here as well, um, over, I suppose, a fairly uh, long period of time, 
through um, a group that myself and Tony are, are involved with. There's the Digital Transformation Lab in UCC. Um, I suppose folks on bringing people together that uh, are interested in digital transformation, but also interested in sharing experiences. And I suppose what we've been trying to do is get beyond the, the BS, you know, the, the the stuff that everyone the, throws out as being, you know, uh, the taken for granted approach to digital transformation. Because the one thing we know is the way we need to transform isn't probably the way that most of us think we need to transform. And based on that, we, we've created a work group. That work group, I suppose, has been looking at, well, what are the key elements of how we need to transform our organization? So just a reminder, this isn't sort of continuous innovation. Continuous innovation is really important. It's the zero to 10% returns. This is more the 10X stuff. This is what is the future out there? How do we actually uh, go out and start to figure out what it looks like and, and bring it back into the core of our, our businesses? So we've created a work group that has been looking at this topic that has met on a number of occasions. And again, if people are interested, uh, and I know speaking on behalf of Tony as well, please link up with us on the likes of LinkedIn, etc. And you'll see us sharing lots of content. But what we've done is, I suppose, uh, it's using systems thinking. Um, innovation is complex, but we also know that complex systems can be understood through simple rules. Simple doesn't mean easy. Okay, so what we've been doing is identify maybe 10 uh, key rules that we feel explains how we should go about this type of innovation and we've associated individual skills with each of those 10 rules. So I'm just quickly going to go through maybe, I think there's maybe three or four of them I've included here. I haven't included all of them, but I list maybe um, what those 10 are at, at, at the end. So one very uh, important one really is about that we need to start now. Okay, we uh, I, I think there's a lot of inertia when it comes to innovation. We're waiting for that perfect occasion. We're waiting for the perfect strategy, the perfect uh, plan, the perfect roadmap, the perfect set of resources, and it never really happens. And that inertia can kill innovation. So what we're talking about here is getting going now, starting on a very low, small scale, but having to find these spaces organizations are set up that there's a dominant logic that dominant logic really is very effective in creating an efficient organization at doing what we do today okay but also it, it's like a gravitational field it puts a gravitational field in place where everything we do nearly now needs to align with that dominant logic but the problem with innovation is if we align with that, that dominant logic we're probably going to end up in the same space or very close to what we're already doing. So what we have to do is try and find these spaces away from this gravitational field, the dominant logic of, of, of organizations, where people are able to ask new questions. Now, the concept of questions is really critical because we will always try and frame what these groups are doing true questions. Those questions really are appreciative questions. They're not about what is wrong, the deficits in our organization. It's about the future. What's the best possible future we, we, we can create? And they're aspirational type uh, uh, questions. So really it's about trying to find a space where we can start now, okay? We can start to ask new questions away from the dominant logic of our organizations. Now, of course, that sounds great, but we have to make sure that we provide some sort of shelter for these conversations. Otherwise, the dominant logic starts to click in. People are expected to behave in, uh, in, in certain ways in answering those questions. Um, so I suppose uh, some of the ways shelter can be provided for those um, uh, questions is maybe one is that maybe a senior leader provides some sort of air cover, says, okay, look, I'm gonna uh, give you space. Uh, I'm gonna protect you while you explore uh, some concepts here. That might be one. Another one is to go off grid. Again, we had interesting conversations during the week where people in organizations are telling us, uh, and we've heard it, over and over again from organizations where there was groups in the organization, maybe that started to meet 
uh, offline or off grid, trying to figure out is there a way of solving problems and maybe even engaging externally in trying to figure out are there ways of solving uh, internal problems, et, et cetera, or, or creating better futures. And then and only then when they felt they had something, would they bring it back into their organization, back to the senior leaders. And that's what we call the off the grid approach to shelter, uh, sheltering these initiatives. Another one is what we call the cuckoo's nest, where there may be a, a project that's already agreed and maybe there's a budget for it, but what we decide is let's do it differently this time. Yes, we will deliver what we're being asked to do, but let's do it in a new way, maybe testing out some new ideas, new approaches. And that's that cuckoo's nest approach. Another approach is what we call the Trojan horse, where there's maybe uh, a very big uh, problem or a very big opportunity. Uh, and there were plenty of these during COVID where we agree guys, we, okay, we're in trouble here, or there's a, a great opportunity. Uh, let's do it in a new way. And of course, in these cases, very often people agree because they've no alternative. Um, the, the attraction of the gift of the Trojan horse or what it's gonna do is enough that uh, we, it buys us space to do new things in, in new ways. So I think they're all uh, important. And again, they need to be in place, okay? It isn't just about starting now, it isn't just about uh, finding spaces. It isn't just about asking new questions. We need the shelter for people to be able to answer those questions in new uh, ways. Um, so another skill and a, a very important skill is, is while we're in those spaces, we need really to be allowed to do, as I say, new things. We need to be able to create a new order within those spaces. And, and I'm reminded uh, of a, a story and a really symbolic story. It was by Zhang Ruman, who is CEO and still CEO of Hire that produced the um, appliances. But um, I remember the story was in 1983, I think, um, uh, Ruman took over as CEO and Hire at that stage were on literally on death's bed. Okay, they were really struggling in the internal market. They were not an, an international organization at that stage. They had major issues with um, quality, which in turn meant there was major issues in terms of the customer's perception of the company. And one of the very first things he did in his first year was I think there was 70 or 80 fridges that had quality issues that were still within the factory. And very publicly, uh, he took a sledgehammer to those 70, 80, um, uh, uh, fridges and smashed them to pieces. And what he was really trying to do was give a message, this isn't good enough. We are not, we are now changing the way we work. We are now an organization that produces quality uh, goods. And that was a really symbolic uh, act. And I think sometimes in organizations, especially where there may be a history of, of, of maybe not being so innovative or, or of, in some cases, nearly killing innovation, sometimes we need a symbolic act. But one of the most effective ways of changing culture in any organization is changing the decision-making schema. Okay, very, very simple but yet so true. So if you want people to behave differently, very often what it takes is to give them uh, a certain amount of decision-making rights. And there's models that show this, there's research that shows it. Uh, and I think when it comes to these teams, the teams we're talking about here, the, the, the teams that exist in these wilding spaces is what we have to do is, is uh, uh, I suppose, move some of the decision-making rights down to those teams. But it isn't just about giving them more decision rights. It's also about making them accountable. So they tell us what they're doing and they're also transparent that we can see what they're, they, they're doing so we can learn from them, okay? So this is really about a new order. We collapse the decision-making down to these teams, but we make them accountable for what they do. It isn't a, a free-for-all, but also it needs to be transparent. That the decisions they're making is there needs to be a history of those decisions and we can see how they work out. And I think that's uh, another really important um, uh, maybe skill. Um, another one um, uh, is, I suppose, there's lots of research 
uh, and I, I'm reminded in this case of, of uh, um, a story that Margaret Heffernan talks about, you know, who'd be well known as an author and I suppose uh, as, uh, as a leader um, of in the management, the leadership space. Now, and I know Margaret tells a story and she, she travels here to Ireland a lot. Um, uh, she's Irish roots, um, but she tells a story um, that again comes from research of, of um, uh, I suppose, a study that looked at um, hens, hens that lay eggs. And what they did was they divided the hens into two groups. One was the star group of, hen, of, of egg layers, and the other was, look, they were average, they were fine, they were ordinary. Uh, and what they did was examine these two uh, subgroups over time. And when they came back um, after a period of time, it was really interesting that essentially the uh, top performing um, uh, egg layers had essentially nearly attacked one another and, uh, and they were literally in bits. The hens were, were in bits from, from competing with one another. On the other hand, the other group had been steady, had been laying and were, uh, I suppose, a lot healthier after the period of time. Now, so Margaret tells the story, I suppose, from a point of view that uh, that what we need to do is foster not necessarily those experts, those stars, but actually experts uh, nurture the ordinary, the ordinary people. And again, I spoke earlier about um, uh, you know the how, how change happens in social systems. There's a guy, John McKnight, he talks about asset-based um, change. Uh, in, in other words, using the assets we already have. And what John uh, McKnight talks about is that if you look at the large scale social change in, in the US, in his case, civil rights, female rights, uh, single sex marriage, all of those started very, very locally. And what McKnight talks about is the importance of realizing that when it comes to change, it's happening in in small localities, but it's even happening within different streets. It's happening within blocks. It's happening within apartments. And that's where change starts. It has to start with local people doing new things and a contagion from there out. Uh, the reason for the, the uh, uh, photo here is this idea that, um, if you look at the, it, I call it the law of the worm, that a single worm uh, can turn six tons of soil in a month. Now, when we look at it, we say it's a slow moving uh, creature, not much seems to be happening. But yet over time, if lots of us can do small things and add those together, that's how contagion happens. That's how large scale change happens. That's how organizations change and uh, when i mean change i mean truly transform so we've been looking at case studies whether it's the likes of nasa what has happened maybe in, in microsoft you know in terms of bringing a more agile approach in growth mindset in again all of those happened very locally sometimes with groups starting to do new things where they didn't necessarily have had permission but they started doing them and others then seeing the positive aspects of those change started to adopt them, embrace them. And that's how contagion happens. True change happens really from the, the, the ground up. Okay, so we're just coming up to half past now, so we're, we're, we're really bang on time. Um, so as I said, we've identified over a, a period of time based on our own experiences, also case studies, also research, sort of 10 key principles, 10 key skills. Um, so uh, just maybe to look at the skills, there's the first skill is starting now, just get going now, stop waiting. Second one we've seen is about creating those spaces, those wild spaces, things, spaces for things to happen differently. Third skill is about animating uh, through big questions, getting people excited through these future-based questions, these aspirational questions. Then I suppose inviting people in and providing shelter for them to start to address those questions. And sometimes being very, um, and in, uh, in some ways symbolic uh, in smashing the old way of work and say, this is different. We're allowing uh, a new order in these spaces. It's about mobilizing ordinary people. It's not about experts. Experts tend to silo. They tend to look at things in a certain way. 
and yet we know the future is complex. We need to look at it in lots of different ways. So we need uh, different people that look at things in different ways, ask these new questions. It's about skill seven, using existing com uh, resources, but in new combinations. The future is always a combination of the past. Okay, but uh, again, we think it's new because it's a new combination as opposed to new resources. Uh, skill eight is a really uh, interesting one. Um, uh, uh, again, we, we've seen that you don't start change with these big announcements, big strategies, because what it does is builds up the antibodies in the organization. It builds up an early resistance before you get going. What we much prefer is you start to do things quietly, slowly, locally. If they work, fantastic, we start to scale them up and they may then end up as a core part of a future strategy. But you start locally. You don't start with a big strategy that you find you can't implement locally. Um, skill nine then is about really lighting the way for others. So again, we can see when these initiatives happen, people are generally very happy to share how they did it with others so that others can then take advantage. And those that are in the IT space may have heard of open source, you know, our inner uh, source, this uh, willingness to share insights with others and to collaborate to some, into something, even when you don't maybe receive any um, extrinsic, um, um, uh, uh, what's the, the word I'm looking for, benefit from it. We're doing it for the right reason. And that really ties in with skill 10 then, be good and do good. And we we, we use a mantra now, uh, you know, it's about um, uh, you know, doing different, being different, doing good. Okay, so again, uh, apologies. It's a very, very quick sort of overview of, uh, I suppose, a lot of work we've been doing and something we're really excited about. It's probably something in my own experience I've seen um, back nearly 30 years ago now. We've seen it in certain organizations and some of these are, are, are by the way, are semi-states. Some of them are, are local authorities. Um, I had discussions during the week with people in the, in the healthcare uh, system where we can see these changes that happen locally and then become mainstream. So what I'm talking about here is not what we call innovation theater. There are these big um, theater that, that I suppose that's very loud, very bright. Uh, you can see it uh, in some cases, you know, uh, innovation labs, in, especially in maybe some of the large consultancies, et cetera, where it's all colors, all noise. It's not about that. It's the complete opposite nearly. It's not about big budgets. In fact, we would say you don't look for a big budget because it comes with constraints and those constraints are typical of the dominant logic. You actually try and do nearly bootstrap what you're doing. It's not about complicated systems. It's about more like human systems. It's about adhering to the way humans like to work. Um, okay, so Tony, hopefully you're still there. I can't see you because I'm seeing the slide deck here, but I, I'm not sure if there's a word or two you want to say just to to fi finish us off there. Well, not finish us off, but maybe finish off um, what this is about. And, and maybe then it gives us time for some questions and answers. And we're just 25 to now, so we're uh, bang on time, I think. Yeah, no, just, just one, one thought as you were talking there, buddy, but was, and, and look, uh, the, the, the steps are really interesting. I think, I think most organizations fall into this trap. You know, we do a big grandiose presentation on we're transforming, and then we get back to doing what we always did. So I, I think I think what you're saying is, look, we need to change this. It can't be just, you know, here's the big presentation and you won't hear from us again. That that doesn't achieve anything in my view. Yeah, and it, it reminds me as well, a, a story about a guy called Jim Caravano, you know, a really respected technology leader in, in IBM. And look, we know IBM missed a lot of the sort of the trends over the years, but the one they probably didn't miss was the the early years of the internet. But that was down to Jim Canavano saying to a, a guy, I think um, was a gross man was his name, saying, I want you to do this stuff locally. I want you to do it under the cover. 
let's not ask for a budget. Let's not give you a title. Let's do it locally so that then we don't build up those antibodies, that resistance within IBM. And that was one of the reasons that IBM uh, really uh, under Gessner was able to reinvent itself. The internet became a key element of their transformation. So it was interesting, Jim, Jim Caravano is well-respected. He says, let's keep off grid here. Let's stay in the weeds as long as we can. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there's another point in this, Buddy, that you know, innovation can sound you know, exciting. Transformation scares the life out of people. Because the first thing to think about is, you know, will I have a job? Will I have a role in this new world? Uh, and it's it's trying to bridge that gap that actually we're changing for the right reasons. You know, it's it's customer led, it's purpose driven. We know what we're trying to do here; it makes sense. But if the people don't feel part of it, it's I can see where you come from. There's the antibodies go up straight away. Like this is not for me. This is not what I signed up for. The great yeah. quote I heard once was, um, "Everybody wants to be a disruptor." But nobody wants to be disrupted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah uh, unless, unless, Kieran, you can create that context and, and you have it rooted in you know real clarity of purpose and real clarity of vision, and, yeah. and you have to answer questions. You know, why should it matter to your people? You know, what does it mean for them? You know, what, what yeah. will the world look like for them? You know, why would it enable them to do things better and have more exciting roles? So you need to answer all these things. Yeah. yeah exactly. And and I think there are in organisations, and you know, we refer to the 2.5, the 2.5 percent, you know, but there there are, there are people in organisations. Uh, now, in some cases, they've dense and are forward from you know being pushed back, you know, and hitting walls, but they are the the, the type that surf i use the sometimes surf metaphor not that i've ever surfed in my in my life you know but this idea there's a certain uh, uh, type of person that surfs towards the waves they surf surf towards the danger and it's not that they're fearless but they love the idea of trying to control yeah. the unknown trying to explore and they are in our organizations but they're absolutely nearly beaten into submission in in lots of cases and end up leaving, you know, which I think is a real, real pity. Because they are, if you, if you look at Satya Nadella in, in Microsoft, Satya came through one of those groups that started to introduce uh, Agile into Microsoft. And this was maybe uh, best part of six, seven years after the Agile Manifesto. And and he, he essentially became the future of that organization, uh, probably, uh, coming from that idea of being the surfer, moving towards the wave, you know, trying to figure out what's beyond this wave and is now leading and has transformed, I think, very successfully, actually, because I remember working with people in Microsoft, um, um, actually, through the likes of the Irish Management Institute, etc., Tony, that you're also involved in, um, back a decade before, and the future was quite uncertain at that stage, you know maybe a bit yeah. longer ago and had, had a struggle there so just some questions and anyone um uh, in attendance today please just uh, drop us in any questions or thoughts you might have one in from uh, kenneth russell is fascinating insights what examples have you seen of the most effectual digital transformation yeah look um so uh, the first thing and thanks ken uh is is not many people call it effectual innovation that i think we have decided to put a term on it because i think it's a certain way of working so if you ask them are they doing effectual innovation kiron they'll probably look at you and say well what's that what now if, yeah. if you if you look at examples you know i've examples from my own past but even some of those that we've mentioned there if you're looking for the bigger case studies though there's the nasa renegades who essentially again they went off the grid. They knew they hadn't necessarily the backing of senior management to introduce a, a new, uh, 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 I suppose, platform for, for mission control after the Apollo era. When they came in, uh, NASA was still using the Apollo era uh, single threaded processing control system said guys this is so dangerous there's there's distributed computing now you know we need more robust they they, they probably initially couldn't get traction because it, there was a dominant logic those systems had been created by people that at that stage had become senior in nasa so they went off and essentially started working before work lunch breaks doing bits here there until they had something that they could bring back into nasa and essentially that transformed the operations uh, 
within NASA. If you look at maybe even, um, and I know at this stage I'm sick and tired of hearing Steve Jobs, Apple, but actually what Jobs did, you know, with the at at the time the Apple II was dominant, uh, you know, again started doing stuff uh, locally, and and there's actually a term, you know, the Silicon Valley pirates or the Apple pirates. There's even a flag if if you look it up, you know, where they were really symbolic. We're doing things in new ways here. And we are going to transform Apple. So again, there's plenty of examples, and and I know if we had more time, we could even go go through more. We spoke about IBM. There's you know there's there's plenty of others. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Thanks. Thanks, Kenneth, for that question. And I say any more there, any more questions out there, do do please raise your more thoughts or anything you'd like to discuss. One slide that really resonated with me, I thought it was very powerful, was the wilding the organization that concept, that idea behind it. It's kind of like just giving your kind of resources that space and that capacity to think differently, to do differently, to, you know, that's where you can really find some kind of nuggets, I think, right? Yeah, and I'm going to throw one at Tony now because he's a bit quiet. Like, you know, I'm I'm intrigued, you know, and I know we've ran events, uh, Kieran. I know you were at some of them as well, you know, about uh, in the financial services stroke banking, possibly even fund management space. And it always amazed me nearly, I I'm going to use the word resistance to be provocative, but this idea of sandbox, especially on a regulatory basis, allowing the industry to sandbox future initiatives. So I'm intrigued by that to know why is it that there's a resistance to know to trying things out, to learning, uh, and over to you, Tony. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a really interesting space, I, I, and I was going to come in this one because I think, you know, when we hear, you know, the great stories about digital transformation and innovation and whatnot, and this term you hear, you know, fail fast. And look, if you're in a regulated environment, you can't fail at all, period. Right? So what you do need to do is create a space where you can experiment and test things in a safe and controlled way. And I think, look, I'm, I'm a big proponent of sandboxes. I think the UK has led the, led the path of this one in terms of how sandboxes can help the industry actually get in and test things with real customers, learn from it, evolve it, and then get it right. You know, Ireland's approach is more in the uh, innovation hub, uh, and that's kind of, well, you know, can I do this, or do I need to be regulated for that? It's not the same. Uh, and I think if you want to create a space, and look, I think there is a fundamental difference. In the UK, for example, the regulator has three mandates, so prudential, consumer, but it also has competition. We only have the first two. Uh, and that 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 actually, to my to my view, creates a, a mindset difference because in the UK the regulator has to support competition as well, and the sandbox goes hand in hand with that. And you know they're trying to ramp up the sandbox and bring it to even new spaces and bring it international. So I think you know if you're in a regulated environment, you know the first thing that happens for you is here are the rules, and you cannot deviate from those rules, and therefore you know you risk your compliance of all these things coming at you. And we don't create the psychological safety for our people to experiment in a safe way with customers where we can figure out, well, you know, it's based on a need. We understand the need, but we need to figure out, will this work? And we need to create that space because if we want to innovate into the future and we want to be you know, a, a global hub uh, that is significantly important into the future, unless we can do this type of innovation, we are going to fall behind because you know, what's happening around the world is quite extraordinary. Right. And on, 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 sorry, sorry Paddy, to finish, and then we have a couple of questions coming in. Sorry, Paddy, go ahead. Yeah, there. no, I, I was just going to maybe pass a comment than than anything because I, I, yeah, I think Ireland Inc., Europe Inc., is being left behind, is my understanding, by some, especially in the financial services space, by some of the things that are are happening in other territories. You know, and I think we have a lot of ground to make up. We need really to have spaces, I'm going to call them wild spaces, where we can start to actually not just catch up, but actually move beyond what's happening elsewhere. And Europe has a lot of advantages, you know. We tend to take a very human-centered approach to, to change, to problems, um, uh, much respected in that regard within, you know, within the States, the way we go about things. So that's all I was going to say, Kieran. sorry. No, no problem. So a question from Sean. Uh, superb insights, two link questions. What feedback are you getting from companies you discuss? in effectual innovation with what level of real appreciation understanding engagement do you see and the second part then is any patterns for example are there any specific industries or types of companies that get it and try to action it 
Yeah, so look, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I'm trying to remember them uh, as well, you know. So in terms of sort of uh, reaction, it's it's very interesting because when when you put when you put those ten up, there's maybe one or two of them all right of those you know skills or, or principles. Uh, uh, but it, most people say, yeah, they're, aren't they obvious? Like you know, and they probably are. There's maybe one or two of them all right. They'll sort of say, well, that's a bit different. You know, this idea of starting quite, starting slow. You know, maybe some of those people will say, well, that's that is quite different to what, you know the way we think about. It. So I think most people's reaction, Kieran, is that they're quite obvious and I think they are from a human point of view but they're what's obvious isn't what we necessarily do in organizations yeah, and that's right. part of the issue yeah. so in, in terms of the traction bit then I think organizations they've come through COVID you know um, I think during probably COVID there was a lot of not that there was fanfare, but people say, look, we're, we're showing we can change. Now, I think the change we saw through COVID was crisis response. It was, a, it was, you know, the survival stuff, you know, and then mm. maybe crisis management, keeping things going. For me, they are not transformation. I know probably Tony shares that idea. Transformation is about what's over the next hill, the hill after. I think there's yeah. a growing awareness within organizations and maybe um, there's a wave of change where they know they have to be part of a bigger picture part of a bigger purpose global organizations are getting are seeing that very clearly now we've seen the the harmonization of corporation tax or the move towards it where the world is saying guys what's happening is not good enough that you have to pay your, your you have to play your part in the future and you have to mm. pay your way in the future so i i think john elkington spoke about the triple bottom line in the 90s you know uh, or the 80s sorry at the 90s it was there i think it's only now when we go into organizations you're starting to hear it more of the language the bigger purpose the purpose beyond profit yeah. you know yeah and then the um, next question then sorry tony I was going to say, you know, sometimes the issue is it's not that the organization can't see the need for the innovation. And we have loads of examples where organizations actually understood the waves of change that were coming at them, but they tried to protect their core business and they tried to maintain the status quo. And sometimes that can be driven by personalities, but sometimes it's just a pure reluctance to change or actually a belief that, well, you know, we ride this one through and we'll be okay. But yeah, you know, there is yeah. always someone looking to do something different, uh, and and you know, you know, we talked about surfing earlier. We there's, there's a guy called John Cabazin. He says you you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Yeah. And I think that we see in organisations is you know we firefight, so we don't even see the waves, uh, and yeah. we need to create that space where we can stand stand back and sort of say, well, which waves are actually really important, and what are we going to do about them? Yeah, it's that famous cover, is it from Forbes in 2007, 2008, which had Nokia, the world's most profitable company? Yeah. yeah. And it was yeah. like a year later, the iPhone comes and like, what was it, four or five years later, Microsoft had bought them up, right? So uh, so I think we probably addressed this question. It's from Michael is, is effectual innovation more relevant now than ever in a time where resilience is a necessity? Yeah, so look, as I said, I, I've, I suppose it's only when I reflected back into what we were doing in the 90s, it was already there. Uh, I'm sure people are even a bit older. I started my uh, sort of professional uh, working career in the 90s. But uh, again, you know, I know uh, there's people that will refer to this type of change going back a long, long time. Uh, uh, I think it is more relevant now because I think it's just untenable that we will have 70, 80% of our employees that are not fully engaged. And the cost of that to our organizations, the cost of it to the individuals where they're going in to work, not feeling a part of, 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 of work or a part of a bigger purpose. I think people now are, are starting to talk with their feet and there's the law of, of two feet. You know, people are tending to go even post-COVID, you know, there's the, the, that, I can't remember the term, but you know, that there's a massive change in the employment structures. There's lots of people that are moving from one company to another after COVID, having reflected on their life and how that life is part of their work life or vice versa. So I think even for those reasons, not to mind the importance of being part of a bigger planet, you know, part of the future, we need to become better ancestors is something we say, you know, for God's sake, we can't pass on the mess 
were making to others. You know? So I think there's lots of reasons why this is important, uh, Kieran. You know, we can pick whichever one we want. Some organizations will pick one. You know, we want people to engage more, be engaged more. That's going to drive effectual innovation in them. Others are saying, uh, you know, a better planet is better business. So that might drive it. Uh, but I'd be my take. There's lots of reasons why this is now more important than ever. And Tony, I, I know you, you'll have your views on it as well. I mean, but even at a more practical level, like, you know, if you think about it, you know, most organizations were born pre-internet. The They're run by executives who were born pre-internet. And yet we're in a digitalized world, which is progressively digitizing at a rate of knots. And we have all these people who the, their relationship with digital is totally natural. And we're not tapping into them and we're not making them part of the teams to figure out what we need to do in the future. So, look, personally, I would be a huge fan of reverse mentoring. Get these digital natives, get them working with the executive teams to understand the potential and how things will look in the future. Because let's be honest, we won't necessarily know because we're a product of our environment. And, you know, we've learned things in our along the way. I think Paulie mentioned earlier, we need to unlearn. Yeah. And here who actually, they think differently. And, you know, they're much more clued into, you know, does the purpose and the values of the organization resonate with me? So if we don't tap into that, that's a huge, huge accident waiting to happen. Yeah, so there's, there's three laws I've picked up in the last hour that I, I, I didn't have previously. There's the law of the hen laying eggs, there's the law of the earthworm, and then there's the law of the two feet. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we like our laws in Cork. Like laws, or we like laws. breaking laws in Cork, maybe is a better way of saying it. So the question from Dara, do you see trends in barriers to innovation? Are there the top three to five that an organization is likely to encounter as they kick off their digital transformation project? Yeah, actually I'm gonna give that one to Tony. Yeah, I look I I I I think I think the uh, there's a couple of things uh, I would say. First first is you know I don't think organizations are really clear on their purpose. So therefore, when it comes to digital transformation and innovation and whatnot, they're not clear on why they exist and what they're trying to do and for who. So I think there, there is a gap there, which which then leaves it for a free-for-all in terms of you know power and other vested interests in terms of what are the things we want to focus on. I think the other thing is we haven't defined what we mean by innovation, digital transformation. Uh, you know, I, I talked earlier in terms of, you know, even in the space of digitization, digitalization and digital transformation, they're three different things. But we talk about them and we throw in innovation as well. We talk about them as all the same things. So I think, you know, if we don't define what we mean by these things, it's very hard to have a meaningful discussion. And, and what happens in reality is unspoken differences. I think it's a horse, Paddy thinks it's a camel and you think it's a zebra. But I'm not going to say anything because I might be found out for not understanding this. So we go on with you know, the world thinking that, well, hopefully no one's going to ask me, is it really a horse? And so I think you, know, you need that clarity of purpose, you need clarity of definition in terms of what we're talking about, and you need to get everyone inside the tent because this is not something you mandate the organization. We are going to transform. And if the people don't want to transform, they're not going to transform. Right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to transform unless they can understand why they should transform and what's in it for them and what it will mean for the company, for themselves, for the customer. And in that context, if they understand those things, well, then they can see a future. If they don't see a future, well, why are they going to change? Uh, Paul, you mentioned earlier, the antibodies will come up straight away. Here's the latest fad coming from head office, and it probably means job redundancy, so let's not go there. Yeah, yeah, very good. We're just coming up now to uh, five to 10. So first of all, I just really want to thank Paddy and Tony. Really enjoyable uh, presentation and discussion there. Thank you very, very much. Um, also, for all, everyone who's attended, uh, fantastic attendance. Thank you for that. And just a reminder that a closing survey will follow at the end just to get your thoughts, feedback, and any like or other topics. Our November session, we're confirming we have um, Snowflake down for it, locking in the date now. So that's going to be another interesting one. And um, that's, that's essentially it. So everyone, uh, enjoy your bank holiday weekend. And uh, many thanks to... Paddy and Tony, that was that was excellent. Really enjoyed it.